This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to the 28th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. Tonight, we have the great privilege of having Maria Inahosa. That's not when you were supposed to do it. I still have more. So you'll get a chance to do this again. Maria is the author of Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, Raising Raul, Adventures Raising Myself and My Son, Cruise, that's C-R-E-W-S, not biography, but Tom, uh, gang members talk to uh, Maria Inahosa. She's also the anchor and executive producer of Latino USA, founder and president of Futuro Media, host of podcast Suave. Uh, we're going to get into your most recent one, uh, USA versus Garcia Luna. She's been given the John Chancellor Award, the Robert F. Kennedy Award for writing about uh, the disadvantaged, Edward R. Murrow Award, four Emmys. Uh, most recently a Pulitzer. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, has worked for CNN, PBS, NPR, CBS. Maria Inahosa, welcome to the Writers' Symposium. <laughs> You got some whoops. Wow. Yeah. It's a lively group. Uh, (laughs) We've got to start with what you've been working on lately and where you've been for the last couple of weeks, several weeks, months, uh, working on this uh, Hanaro Garcia Luna case. Before that trial started, you and one other person, Penny Lay uh, Ramirez, started a podcast, USA versus Garcia Luna. But to a lot of people in this country, this was just another trial about corruption in Mexico. We, you know, as an audience, we can't keep the cartels straight, let alone government officials. But there was something different about this case that got your attention that you thought we needed to know. Why? What was that? First of all, it's great to be here with everybody from San Diego. So thank you for all the love. I'm feeling it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. Um, and thank you. Thank you to this fabulous place for, for having me. It's really um, been very, very special to be back in San Diego because, you know, this used to be my home for a minute. So it's good to be back. So a lot of people might just be thinking, what are they talking about? What is this case? Uh, it's too bad that you don't immediately know because you all knew about the case of El Chapo. Well, that was because of Sean Penn, though. That you know, maybe, right? maybe, maybe okay. because of Sean Penn. But it, the point is, is that this is the second largest trial of um, now we can say of a narcotraficante. We used to say before alleged, but he's been found guilty. Um, so the backstory goes like this: I actually did not cover 
narco, did not cover El Chapo, did not cover anything that had to do with that side of the story because I just felt that there were too many journalists who were already doing that work. And the narrative was, ooh, bad Mexicans, cartels, dangerous. That stuff always happens in Mexico. And I was like, I don't want to be a party to that. But I ended up in the Dominican Republic without access to English language Netflix. Mm -hmm. And so ended up watching the Spanish language version of El Chapo, which if you haven't watched, it's actually brilliantly produced. And there was a character in this TV show that was over the top, um, just unbelievable. And I really didn't even know who he was based on. It was, to me, it was kind of just entertainment, except it turns out that I run into Penile Ramirez, who is now uh, my co-executive producer of my investigative unit. And Penile uh, is a Mexican-Cuban journalist, and she actually was researching and investigating this guy, Genaro Garcia Luna, for over a decade. So who is Genaro Garcia Luna? Um, he was the cabinet-level head of security for the Calderon presidency in Mexico. Prior to that, he had been basically the head of the equivalent of the FBI, the CIA. He himself was a spy. His wife is a spy. Um, they used to work in the equivalent of the Mexican um, CIA. And um, so he was working for the Mexican government. He was the right hand of Felipe Calderon. He was working for the DEA, you know, the good cops. Um, and then, oh my gosh, if finally everybody finds out he was working with El Chapo too. How did that happen? And to me, the question is, so we have this extraordinary intelligence in the United States of America, like the best intelligence, but they couldn't figure this one out. How does that go? How is it that they, the United States, their intelligence is so good that they're dumb? I, it just didn't make any sense. So... Um, you sound skeptical. I'm incredibly skeptical because they had to have known. I mean, unless Garcia Luna, who has now been found guilty of all charges, was a super brilliant triple agent, they knew. So my entry into covering this story was, one, actually laughter, because Garcia Luna in real life is a very strange character, like his obsession in his secret basement, and you're like, oh, was it drugs? Was it guns? What was it? Disco music? <laughs> Fan of Donna Summer? You know, and I was like, okay, wait, what? So that's how my interest started in this guy, because we decided to just call it When True Crime Meets Telenovela, because it's very <laughs> telenovela. And, um, and because I had never covered this story, I told Penile who is the expert on Genaro Garcia Luna, who then ends up getting arrested in 2019 in the United States, I said, just tell me the story. But I need to have a little bit of tequila because what you're going to tell me is so crazy. And I don't even drink, but I just need a little bit of tequila. And so we did this podcast called USA versus Garcia Luna. Um, the trial started about six weeks ago. Um, and we did this kind of sleeper cult hit podcast that has taken off. It's number 11 in Mexico, even though the podcast is in English. We now produce it in English and in Spanish. And we're in the top 100 of true crime podcasts in the United States. Um, and I don't really, the whole true crime 
thing is, we can talk about that. But um, he ended up being found guilty on all charges on Tuesday. Um, so you were there? And I was there. And we um, are dropping the episode. We're actually, they're just doing like QC right now. And the, they're trying to get me to give my notes. And I'm like, I can't. I'm in San Diego. Um, so the episode, our latest episode on the guilty verdicts will drop tomorrow. But it's a very fun podcast because, um, and I actually talked to my therapist about this over the weekend. I was feeling guilty because we laugh a lot about this guy and he's on trial, maybe in prison for the rest of his life. And he has kids, a 26-year-old son and a 24-year-old daughter. And I was feeling bad because I'm human, you know. Uh, and I was like, I'm making fun of this kid's dad. How do I handle that? And then my therapist was like, that's not your burden. Hmm. That is not your daughter. Yeah, Actually, I want to talk to you about the tone of that podcast. Because, I mean, that was a clear decision you and Penny Lay uh, made to make it lighthearted. We're talking about overdoses. We're talking about people dying. We're talking about terrible, terrible things. And you guys are clinking tequila glasses. And, yeah. And so, so I'm just, I'm not criticizing you. I'm just saying that was a calculated state, uh, a calculated approach. Why that approach? Because I'm not interested in listening to a podcast, a narco podcast. Because I'm, I'm just not. And I feel that the approach that we had, which was not to just, yes, there's this character who loves disco and he's a little bit strange. But to me, the bigger issue is the role of the United States. Okay. The drug war that Genaro Garcia Luna was running in Mexico was a drug war supported by our tax dollars. And that was basically imported from the United States into Mexico. And so it, it feels stranger than fiction. And I, I just really didn't want to like sit there and do a deep analysis as to all the levels of the Sinaloa cartel and who's this and who's that. But I did want to know about this guy. I did want to understand it. And it was a window into understanding the level of corruption in Mexico. But again, I wanted to go beyond just pointing the finger at Mexico and saying, and what is the role of the United States? And why does it matter? Why do I want you to listen? And that's for why do I need to make it entertaining and funny, etc.? Because it's our tax dollars that are being sent to Mexico to be part of a drug war, which is very crazy because where are we in San Diego? Oh, wait a second. Cannabis is legal here. So I can leave right now and go buy whatever I want in a 24-hour dispensary here, but we're talking about a, a drug war and narcos, it doesn't make sense. We all know it doesn't make sense. So by using humor to get you to come into the podcast, then we're able to have a larger conversation, which is, so what exactly is the role of the United States in all of this? You did it beautifully, in my opinion. I thought it was very entertaining. It was very informative and, and you had this other purpose, and that was to kind of change the narrative of how we talk about drugs and corruption and Mexico and all that. And, and just as you said, and one of the ways you're doing that in this podcast is you're saying, and what is our role in this country? I, I thought it was really, really effective. And still, this trial is huge. It just ended. Many of you had probably no idea and so the question is, so why, why 
don't our colleagues in the U.S. media care about this? And that is where I get even more upset because the story is, oh, well, you know, you know, Mexicans, they're corrupt. But, you know, the corruption stops as soon as you get to the U.S.-Mexico border because of that wall, right? So the corruption just stays south. There's no corruption here. I mean, no. The corruption here is like, it's on the TV show Ozarks, which I'm watching now. It's like, you know, one dude in, in Missouri. No. So, uh, so I'm not prepared, uh, to kind of sit back and take that, especially with a government agency like the DEA that is believed to be the good cops and that we are sold a narrative that they are the good cops. I'd rather that they just be honest and say, look, Actually, because of what we do, we're going to actually have to be really bad cops and we're going to have to get into bed with some very corrupt people. But we're just letting you know that's what it's going to look like. As opposed to, you know, the narco story, Narcos, the TV show, which is, you know, actually, if you, I rewatched Narcos and everything about Narcos says everything about the DEA, which is that it's a failed institution. And again, those are our tax dollars. And I'm not prepared to just sit back and be quiet about that. So I, I'm very surprised it took off, um, but it has, and we're very happy about that. So speaking of podcasts, uh, congratulations on the Pulitzer for Suave, by the way. That's pretty awesome. I mean, it's, it's about time you got a Pulitzer is the way I looked Thank at it. So, so here's one of the things I appreciated about that podcast, and that was you didn't minimize the harm that this guy did, that you focused on. You didn't minimize that. You humanized it. And I just thought that was another... I mean, you also kind of held up the immorality of life sentences for juveniles, but, um, but you just humanized this guy. And I, um, you didn't excuse what he did. You didn't, uh, you didn't say, oh, it's okay. But you made him a human being, which reminds me of your first book, Cruise. Yes. It just felt like it was the podcast version of the book that you did about talking to gang members, and you humanized them as well. That's, that's important to us, I think. Don't you think? Yeah, and you're not going to believe it, but actually, just before I came on, I got an email from the guy who's on the cover of Cruise. My, this, right here. Uh, the book that's here, the guy who's on the cover is somebody I also maintain contact with. Um, and when we aired that story on All Things Considered, the story Cruise, of which this book was born... Uh, so that would have been 93 and a lot of the all things considered audience was actually very upset about the fact that I had done this radio verite of hanging out with a crew gang um, and giving them voice to basically so we could understand it was the first time I know on public radio that the term Vic had been used Vic is of course short for victim and if you are talking with people who have a criminal mind, they will see a Vic and they will go after that Vic. And I think people were just like, oh, how are you using these words? Why are you giving them a platform? Um, look, I think that the issue of humanity is actually really important in the work that we do. And whether you are talking to somebody like, like John, who was part of this crew, 
Or like Suave, who spent 31 years in prison and actually didn't commit the crime, um, but spent 31 years in, in prison for it. Um, or, or speaking with people with whom I don't share political views. Um, I'm still going to try to find that humanity because it is the thing that I think when you talk about hope, um, I have a lot of hopeful stories of moments when I'm interacting with people. In fact, I'll, I'll just give you a quick one. Because as journalists, we work all the time. I mean, you and I have been together since you picked me up at the airport. We've been, we've basically been journalists with each other the entire time because we don't, we don't stop. We don't shut it off. And some of our great conversations happen with that driver in the cab or in the lift that's taking you to one place or another. And so I was in Chicago just before the pandemic and I was before the election. And so I was asking everybody, so who are you going to vote for? And people... You were doing this in a cab? You were asking a cab driver who was well, going to Well, I would say first, I would say, can I ask you a personal question? And the surprise was the number of people who were like, yeah, because I would say, well, it depends. But people were like, sure, go ahead, ask me, yeah. And so I'd say, well, who are you going to vote for? And they'd be like, well, oh, okay. And this guy from Chicago, white guy in his 50s, was like, I'm liking Trump. And I was like, okay, tell me why. And he was like, well, because Trump, has everything that he needs in life. He has all the money and everything. So he just is motivated by the goodness of his heart. There you go. And I was like... It was a very short cab ride, I'm guessing. No, no, yeah. it wasn't. It was because we were going to the airport. And I was like, come again? Say who? And so I had a long conversation with him where I was asking him about to expre express himself and listened a lot. And then I said, as we were getting closer to the airport, I said, well, look, you know, I'm a Mexican journalist. And um, so I'm everything that Donald Trump hates. Uh, and this is how I see it. And I'm a New Yorker. You, and he listened. And he was just listening. Um, wasn't convinced exactly. But then when we got to the airport, he was dropping me off. He came around to take out my luggage. And he said, eh, well, Merry Christmas, you know, peace be unto you. And I said, well, sir, I just have to tell you, I can see you're a religious man. Um, if Joseph and Mary, Mary being pregnant with Jesus, if they came to the United States right now asking for refuge so that Mary could give birth safely in the manger in the United States, but they're in Mexico, because of Donald Trump, they would have to sleep on the concrete. Well, you know, concrete back then. But okay, you know, like they won't be allowed in because of the policies of Donald Trump. And this cab driver just kind of looked at me and was like, what? And I was like, well, those are the policies that we've been talking about. And he just kind of took a pause and he looked at me and then he said, can I hug you? And I said, of course. And, and so I don't know what happened, but I know that there was a meeting in that moment of understanding. And so... I spend a lot of time uh, finding the humanity, especially with people with whom I share nothing, because I think that's part of our job. I think that's one of the great things you do. So, so I want to go back to your early days, like really early days. In the opening chapter of Once I Was You, you tell this harrowing story of almost being taken from your family by a 
uh, it wasn't Border Patrol. It was uh, Customs. Immigration. Im- immigration yeah, person. It would have been INS, um, I guess. And your mom and siblings, you're all moving to Chicago. Your dad's already here. Uh, he's taken a job. And you almost get taken from your family. I'm guessing that helped you maybe have a little more drive toward the stories you've been telling more recently about family separation. But tell us what happened. How did, how did your mom work that out? So um, when our colleagues at ProPublica were able to get through a whistleblower, so if you know people who are in institutions and can be whistleblowers, please encourage them um, because they can change history. Uh, there was a whistleblower who recorded the sounds of the children who were in the cages. Uh, by the way, those cages still exist. They exist a few minutes from where we are here um, in San Diego. Um, and when my mom heard those children crying, this is something that triggered her. By now, she's already in her 80s. And she calls me and says, Really, really very emotional. I didn't understand what was happening. She was like, oh, my God, the babies are being taken. And I was like, I know, Mom, it's horrible. I was in an airport. Um, and she was like, no, you don't understand. I understand those mothers. And I was like, I know, Mamita, it's horrible, it's horrible. And she was like, no, you're not hearing me. This almost happened to me. It almost happened to you. The immigration agent at the Dallas airport, which now I know is Love Field, he tried to take you from me. And what happened was that in Texas, in the state until 1964, the laws on the books said that you as an immigration agent had the right to search a Mexican's body for signs of illness because we are carriers of illness, right? Uh, this is not new, this notion that we are bringing. In fact, I'm going to use a slur. So two words put together are a slur. Separately, they mean nothing. So you're warned, dirty Mexican. There is a reason why there is that slur. It was part of what was uh, used legally in Texas to keep Mexicans out, to keep them at bay, or in this case, to search their bodies. And the immigration agent saw that I had a rash. I was a baby. But he saw I had a rash, and so that's when he said to my mom, Well, now, ma'am, you you and your other three children, y'all can go on up to Chicago. You can just give me the little baby girl. We're just going to keep her here in quarantine in Dallas, the airport. But y'all can go ahead. He's like, just give her to me. We'll keep her. And um, that's when my mom realized exactly what had happened, was that the immigration agent did try to take me and would have kept me. And the thing that happened to my mom, who is petite like me, in that moment of understanding what was happening, she said, you used to think that I just had a big mouth and that in that moment that I just had a big mouth. But she said, actually, I was speaking from trauma. I had nothing. There was no fight or flight. She couldn't leave. How could she fight this person? The only thing she had was her voice, literally, and so she started screaming at the immigration agent. Um, this petite, five-foot-tall woman with four Mexican kids, um, she just started screaming at the agent, who was like six-foot-four, and he got really freaked out by the fact that she was screaming and making a scene, and he was like, okay, 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 take your kid and go. 
Uh, but how many, right, but how many others, how many others didn't, and my mom understood she had a little privilege, right? But how many others then were taken at that airport? Because, you know, you like to think, well, that guy was just like a weird event. It just it never happened before until that moment when he saw me. It's like, no, there was a systematic removal again of children. This is 19, until 1964, that law was in the books. This was the year 1962. And so he, by law, had the right to check my body and see if I was dirty and if I was carrying illness. And that law disappeared. But now we have Title 42. So it's as if it, it's all back with us 100%. So, so that experience, though, especially hearing it from your mom, that gave you even, I'm guessing, a little more emphasis in no. how you were covering. No, you know what happened? Tell me. It was like, it was like a ray of light that came over me in this profound emotion because then I knew exactly why I do what I do. I mm. knew exactly. I was like, this is why you are that journalist who will always cover the issue of immigration and always cover immigrants and always cover Mexicanos and Latinos and Latinas and our struggles in this country because of that moment of trauma. I knew it. It made everything crystal clear for me. So you did a really powerful frontline piece on, uh, called Lost in Detention. And, uh, and it was about these camps that people and, and about families being separated, which really held... The cliche I use as a journalist is it really held that bright spotlight of public scrutiny on a public agency, looked at the morality of this kind of detention and uh, challenged it. But here's my question. What good does it do to just say, we're going to shine this light on this and now somebody else is going to have to do something with that? What good is that? Yeah, Dean. So that's really, you got, you, you went real dark real fast. Um, because what we feel as journalists is that when we shine a light on an injustice, then we expect the injustice to be addressed. The issue of immigrants and refugees and our dehumanization, um, is such that even after that frontline exposed all of this, uh, even after Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois said, we are going to now offer rape protection inside these detention camps it, because there is none. Um, now it's there, but I'm doing another documentary about rape and detention facilities now. So this is 2023 and that documentary was 2011. So things have gotten worse, not better. And this is where I get very desperate I feel profoundly desperate. It is why you will hear me over and over again say we should never use the term illegal to describe any human being. There is no such thing as an illegal immigrant or an illegal alien or an illegal human being. And if you're like, well, well wait a second, but we've been using that term all the time, right? Well, illegal is not a noun, right? There is no such thing as an illegal. You've probably said it. Well, there are some illegals. It's not a noun, right? And when I asked the brilliant survivor of the Holocaust, Elie Wiesel, Nobel Peace Prize winner, when I met him, I said, 
what do you think about this term, illegal immigrant? And he said, he was the one who taught me. So a Jewish man survivor of the Holocaust is the person who taught me to never use the term illegal. He said, the first thing the Nazis did was to declare the Jews to be an illegal people. So the dehumanization that we are all living with, that you in San Diego live with 24-7 right here, that dehumanization starts with the labeling us as illegal, as a threat, there you have to, where you have to build walls and destroy friendship parks because, you know, we're such a threat. Uh, so this is where we've gotten to, right? Where children are taken, where we are held in yeleras, you know, which are basically refrigerators. That's where we are put once we are taken by the Border Patrol, where we are put in perreras, which are the, the dog cages where they hold us. This is your country. It's yours I mean, too. It's mine too, but I know I'm doing something about it on a daily. I, I know that I am just like, hasta que me muera. I'm going to be, you know, doing this, doing this every single time. And by the way, it, it doesn't bring me any joy because you know that the Border Patrol is the largest law enforcement agency in the United States, right? It is a majority Latino and Latina law enforcement agency. So this is being done by us, to us. And more money is spent on the what I call the mass detention, deportation, industrial complex. The whole process, detention, holding them, moving them. More money is spent on that than all federal law enforcement agencies combined. More than the FBI, the CIA, the, uh, the um, uh, ATF, all of that combined. More money is spent in immigrant detention and removal in this country. Does that feel right? It's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, so now that I have every single possible award named after a man that's possible to be won. <laughs> mostly white guys, too, now that I think about it. Kind of all. Some, mostly. Like, like all. Yeah, okay, all. I mean, I all did right. receive the Frederick Douglass Award, but that is, you know, that's my guy. That's my inspiration. Um, right, so, okay, I've got it. I've got it. We need to name an award after you, <laughs> and then we'll give it to somebody else. So We can do that. So I, I want to go back to the early days. I'm, I'm just sort of stunned that when you were little, you loved watching 60 Minutes. I did. I'm just thinking, really? I did. 60 Minutes? The whole family, we would be just like, it's coming. 60 Minutes wow. is coming. And then it was after 60 Minutes, it was mutual love, Omaha. Da, 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 da. And it was like the this the dogs and puppies and yeah. tigers and all of that the antidote to 60 right. minutes right. so but i i think there was something about that maybe it was already implanted in you but there was something about that that maybe helped you kind of become this person who was okay with challenging authority because that's what, clearly what that show has done yeah i think my family understood that in this country, the media was to be respected. It was, it had power. It's one of our main reasons for the United States, our freedom of expression. And so we, my family took it really seriously. It was like, we, my only, my dad was a citizen, but we felt like this was like, this was Americana at its core. And so, yeah, we were obsessed. I mean, watching these guys just challenge power. 
We loved it. We were rooting for Morley Safer and Dan Rather and all those guys. We're like, go! All those guys. All the guys. Right.、Um, and so, I'm sure that that was part of the seed that was planted in me. Even though in my life I never would have thought that I could become a journalist because there were no women journalists on television and there were certainly no Latina journalists. So, no. So really, what you wanted to do was become an actress. Yes. So you audition for something, and、uh, the audition went fine. What did the director tell you? So the director, this was on the、uh, in Chicago,、um, and I was making a decision whether or not I was going to become an actress or go to college. And I went to this audition, and he was like, "No, it's a great audition, but I don't really see you in the business because you're not you're not white enough, you're not dark enough, you're not tall enough, you're not short enough, you're not street enough, you're not sophisticated enough. Like, I don't really get you. I don't really see where you're gonna." And he. Literally burst my bubble, and I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm not good enough to do this." And so I, I gave up on、uh, on being an actress. Isn't there a kind of a subtext to that too, though, that says you're not enough? I mean, you're not white enough. You're not Latino、yeah. enough. I mean, you're not enough. Oh, one hundred percent. It was definitely like a, you're definitely not enough. And I, if you read my book, I, I write about this a lot. About the insecurities, about the imposter syndrome, and when the book came out, people were like, "Why did you want to reveal those insecurities that you had? Why?" Maria, that was the every- strength of the book, by the way. Everybody sees you as so strong. Why would you reveal this? And I was like, "Because it's the truth, and you can't write a memoir without being honest. And also because I want people to see that you can have all these deep insecurities, but it doesn't have to stop you from also." Having these dreams and passions and this sense of responsibility, which is what I really feel,、um, I feel a real sense of responsibility in this country, especially after I became a citizen. I'm like, okay, well now, now that I'm a citizen, I'm definitely holding this country responsible. Let's go back to the acting thing just for a second. You got a part in In the Heights. I did get a part in In the Heights. So there's that. Yes, you know that.、Um, if you haven't seen In the Heights, definitely show some love for In the Heights. And yes, I, I did get a role,、um, and it was an absolute dream come true. Which is why, with my students, Dean, I don't know、um, if you do this, but with my students on the first day of class, and we're debriefing and getting to know each other, which to me is a very important part of the classroom experience. I ask them what is their craziest, wildest dream, and I ask them to say it out loud because my craziest, wildest dream was that I would be in a Hollywood movie, and it came true. So I try to say, so you never know. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but hold on to those crazy, wild dreams because you absolutely never know. And as I said earlier today, my relationship with Hollywood <clears throat> is just starting. <laughs> yeah. No. I hate it when you do this because here's here's the thing, you're gonna just tease that out, and then you're gonna say, "But I can't tell you anymore." But I can't tell you anymore.、Oh, I hate it when you do that. Let's just say there are a lot of you know a lot of the things that you're watching right now. Many of them are actually coming from podcasts and ending up as television shows or as movies. Or I mean, what is that? Only murders in the building is built on an entire podcast. They don't really know what they're doing in terms of doing a podcast, but、um, so there is a lot of this kind of crossover that's happening. So yes, stay tuned. But you aren't going to tell us. Can't can't tell you. All right. 
Let's, let's go back to this identity thing because the, there's, another, there's another part of your book where some, some dude comes up to you at an NPR cocktail party or something like that and says, oh, you're Marie, you know. So you know, you know what I'm, yeah, you tell it. I think you're talking about the one who says uh, you have a Latino agenda. Is that it? Well, that and why can't you Americanize your voice? Oh, why can't I Americanize my voice? Uh, yeah, that happens uh, a lot. Um, you know, the thing about what happened when I went on the air for the first time and realized that I was not going to be Maria Hinojosa, but that I was going to be Maria Hinojosa, is it was my first time on the air for NPR. I was an intern the first Latina ever to be in the editorial floor of NPR. And, um, and I, I was getting ready to record my, I was an intern. I was a kid, but I had gotten a spot on the news uh, segment of NPR of all things considered. And I was like, who am I? I'm, I'm Maria Hinojosa. And so that's what, that's what happened. I went on the air and I was Maria Hinojosa and then that's it, you know. And a lot of people love it, but still to this day, it, people hate it too. In fact, it just came up on Twitter uh, not too long ago and people were still coming at me. Somebody said, every time I hear Maria Hinojosa say her name, I say my name in the strongest Irish accent I possibly can. And I was just like, what, like, what are you trying to say here? Like, you're making fun of me. It was, it was very weird. But people have always tried to say that to me. Can you, why do you say it like that? Why don't you Americanize it? Why don't you just Americanize your whole self? And I'm just like, this is Americana. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that. Even before you got into journalism, you were a DJ in New York and and then you started seeing things going on around you that folks in the mainstream media weren't necessarily paying attention to, and those were the stories you started bringing to NPR or to whomever. That's always been kind of your signature, hasn't it? Are these folks yes, who, because the invisible I people? Yeah, because I understood that they were not invisible to me. Right? This was a whole community. Like This is New York City. So we're talking about like the beginning of my career. It's New York City. In the 1970s and 80s, um, Latinidad is like, I mean, the, the salsa movement. New York City salsa was like hot. Uh, Madison Square Garden selling out, you know, three nights in a row for salsa is the festivals. Uh, what was happening? The activism of our, our Puerto Rican brothers and sisters. Uh, the activism throughout the Central American refugee crisis that, again, was already existing in the early 80s. And... Um, I was living this. So how could I not be a journalist? How could I be a journalist and not be reporting about this? This was like happening. And they had no clue. That's right. Because again, there were no Latinos at NPR. Zero. Zilch. Except for me. And so I felt, I understood that I had this incredible privilege, right? Because my dad got, is a genius. May he rest in peace. Helped to create the cochlear implant. You know, he's hired by the University of Chicago. Therefore, I have the privilege of going to the University of Chicago High School. And that allows me to then even know what was Ivy League, know what was Columbia, what was Barnard College, and get into Barnard College 
So I understood like, wow, this trajectory has allowed you to have this privilege. So you have this profound responsibility. And as a journalist, that means you take all of that and you bring it into the newsroom and you bring it into those meetings. And you know how editorial meetings can be. They're like really scary. And I was scared and, and I would literally prop my hand up. I would hold, I would force my hand up because I was scared. And I knew that my ideas were going to get trashed, you know, I, I believe. And so I just would force myself and I happened to work at a really great show at that time. It was a uh, weekend edition with Scott Simon. And Scott's a very attentive uh, journalist and his executive producer, Jay Kernis, who hired me also. And so they heard and they were like, this is great journalism. These are just great stories. Like if you're a good journalist and you hear somebody saying, wait, I've never heard about that before. And tell me more. Right. Then that's when you know that you have a great story and you have great colleagues. And that's what allowed me to start my career at NPR. But remember, I only did that for one year because um, I did get frustrated. I, I did get frustrated. I did feel like I was pigeonholed um, in many ways. And that's when I quit NPR and everybody was like, oh, you quit NPR after only one year? Nobody quits NPR. It's everybody's dream. And then I came to KPBS here in San Diego. So I learned how to drive, got a beat up Honda Civic hatchback this big, as big as this table, and um, learned how to drive and drove across the country. Had never been to California. And yeah, got to San Diego. Literally like drove straight to that, to the pier where the boat is. You know, the boat that's still there that everybody goes to eat at, that place. I was like, this is a beach? That, that boat sank. It sank? Yeah. The, are you talking about the Reuben E. Lee? I guess so. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It was where everybody would go and eat. It was like, you know, yeah. I just like, I went straight to like wherever I could, yeah. you know, and to the water. I thought I was going to end up on a beach, but I was like, it's a dock. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody no, talks you'd... about the beaches and say, where are they? It took yeah. me a while to find them. You'd need a submarine to get there now. Uh-huh. So wh- wh- I, one of the stories, I, this is later in your career that illustrates this is uh, you were in El Salvador and there are these kids who would entertain people and and you did a story about them instead of all of the horrible things going on in El Salvador. Uh, why them? Why not do the serious stuff? Yeah, so Scott, Simon, myself, um, and another producer, we were covering La Ofensiva del 89 when the revolution in El Salvador was coming to a head with the offensive of the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front in San Salvador in 1989. And uh, we were covering the ugly stuff. You know, I mean, you never forget going to sleep in a hotel and hearing the bombs dropping. You know, uh, you will never forget that sound and, and those sentiments. Um, and we had done a lot of reporting about these very difficult, horrible things, you know, because the Salvadoran military did not play, uh, play right. So they were bombing hospitals. So we were doing all of that. And right in front of the hotel, I think it was the Intercontinental, where we were staying, where all of the journalists were staying, um, the kids would dress up as payasos, as clowns, and they would clean the windows and do the little fire stuff, seven, eight-year-old kids, and everybody, nobody saw them, right? they just drive by them. Right past them. Drive right past them. And I was like, but this is happening right in front of our hotel, Let's talk to these kids. And Scott has always been very good to talk with kids. 
And so, and that was one of the places where, again, I'm very transparent, right, about what we do and how we do it because Scott kind of, kind of, it took one step and it was like, is this appropriate or not? Because Scott was like, do you want to, do you want to go to McDonald's? Um, which I was like, no, McDonald's. But, you know, these kids, they were like, McDonald's. Wow. Yes. And then if we go there, we can get food and we can save some for our mom, which was like incredible. They actually like took a little part of the burger and the french fries to make sure that they were going to be able to take something for, for their mom um, or their brothers or sister. And that story about the kids became um, just the most memorable story of our time. Audiences the loved war. it. The audiences loved it. So my message to journalists is, again, keep your eyes open. And the thing that, that again, seems like a drive-by moment is maybe the most important moment of all. Mm-hmm. And it's our job to be seeing that. Um, for our partners, for our family members, it can be a little exhausting, right? Because we're always doing this. But for us in our profession, it's the thing that makes us feel so alive and so hopeful about our profession. You know, I want to I want to go back to something that that you've already mentioned. It comes up several times in your book. This imposter syndrome uh, you had early in your career, um, regardless of the job you had, regardless of how qualified you were to tell it, uh, you just had this sense of uh, you're you're kind of a you're kind of a fraud here. How do you? And I'm thinking about. Young people, for instance, how do you quiet that voice, or should you quiet that voice? When it gets to the point where it's like interrupting your thought process, you have to quiet the voice. How do you do it? Well, um, I love telling these stories because when I was younger and battling this, I had a great therapist, may she rest in peace, Andaye. And um, Andaye was the one who would help me to understand that I had every right to be there because this is... The, the fear was, I'm going to get found out. You know, they're going to realize that I actually don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how to write a piece, even though by now I had already won awards and such. But I was like, but suddenly I'm just going to, they're, they're going to realize that this is just all a question of luck for me. And they're going to pull the rug out from under me. And that's going to be it. And, and I, I had a recurring nightmare of an elevator falling um, and to me, it was part of like the, dis- you're going to get discovered. You're going to be found out as a fraud. The elevator is going to, you know, going to fall and everything's going to disappear. And, and they said, okay, let's, let's stay with the elevator. So you're in the elevator and it falls, it crashes. What are you going to do? I was like, what do you mean? She's like, okay, you're in the elevator. It has fallen, but you're alive. What are you going to do? And I was like, what is the trick question here? She's like, what will you do? And I was like, get up. And she was like, exactly. You're going to get up. And I remember just like, okay, so even if I am found out, I will get up, right? The whole issue of being found out, of course, is that it's in our minds that we have this whole illusion. So what I tell young people is, mm, you know, we have this image like, uh, what is that, that game that, exists in certain supermarkets, the claw, you know, this one that claws down and it never oh, right, really, right. Right. You put, you put money in, you put money, and the but claw, you never, you're yeah. never able to pick anything up. Right. Right. 
So when you feel the imposter syndrome, it's not as if you have been like in, like me, for example, picked up from the airport and suddenly just dropped here having this conversation. Like, oh, what am I doing here? What? No, there's actually steps along the way that have gotten you here, right? Empirically, I'll tell my students, you have not just been picked up and dropped in my class at Barnard College, for example, or having a meeting with fill in the blank. You've actually had the trajectory. You have the empirical, my favorite word to combat imposter syndrome. You have the empirical reality of everything that you have done to get you to this place. That is real. That are, those are facts, things that you have done. So people can't take that away from you. But my favorite tool for how to get rid of imposter syndrome is um, from somebody who I love and admire. Her name is Rita Moreno. She is the star of West Side Story. She is the star of One Day at a Time, the reboot. If you don't know who I'm talking about, you need to know who Rita Moreno is because she's the most... Rita is probably like almost 90 at this point. Um, she's, she's, got, she's an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony, and a SAG Lifetime Achievement Award and a Peabody. So she's got all of the awards. And when I interviewed her about five years ago, I asked her, so do you have the little voice? And she was like, oh, of course I have the little voice. She was getting ready to receive the SAG Lifetime Achievement Award. She was going to, she told me, I'm going to sing a cappella at the awards. Nobody knows um, and that's, and it's going to be watched by what, 50 million people, who knows how many millions of people. And I say, and what are you going to do? She says, so when that voice comes, she says, I actually punish the voice. I name the voice. She has a voice, a name for the voice, Maria Conchita, Susanita Perez, no sé qué, blah, blah, blah. And she said, Maria Conchita, Susanita Perez, te vas a tu cuarto. Te vas a tu cuarto y cierras la puerta. You go up to your room and you have to close the door. You're not allowed out. And so she actually punishes her little voice and sends her to the room. And then she's like, and then I don't hear her. That's awesome. So I don't have imposter syndrome anymore. But if I do, I follow Rita Moreno. So e even when you did, though, you hid it really well. Oh, absolutely. Because when, I've, when I see television footage, if, if you were walking toward me with that sort of determined walk that you've got and that look that you, that you I, I'd be thinking, you are 60 minutes. Oh. You, you, I'd be terrified of you if you were coming after me. So you, you hide it well. Well, yeah. I think that I understood that I could not show my weakness, but I don't think I understood the kind of power that I gave off. Um, and I think for many young women, that is part of our reality, right? And so that's why I will tell, especially young women uh, who are Latina or Afro-Latina, Black, Asian, a queer, trans, Muslim, you know, you have to own that power. You actually have to really own your power. Um, and... Nowadays, because we have a lot of hate coming towards us, I'm like, girl, you got to walk in like this. Hello, I'm here. So own that, own that, like I'm intense and I'm walking in and I'm just like, hello. But also we have to understand the importance of humility. So I am able to, I think as a journalist, I've always been able to do this delicate dance between having and trying to exude a lot of power, even if I didn't feel it but also knowing how to be really humble 
and how to be quiet and how to be small, which is not hard when you're five feet tall. So one of the other things you're really good at, though, on that, on that line is you're also fair. So again, the, the lost in detention, if you were a person watching that program who was totally into this is the rule of law, this is what should happen, you, you, gave, you gave that audience member a pretty fair shake. If you had this view that this is a terrible thing, this is immoral that, uh, that we're doing, you gave that audience member a fair shake. And so one of the, I just think it's remarkable that you are able to not necessarily get your personal stuff into those stories, regardless of how you feel about it, regardless of what your own kind of moral challenge might be. But that's a, that's a discipline, isn't it? Or is that good editing? Or what is that? No, I mean, it is a discipline. And that's why I told that story about Chicago, right? Because it has to, you have to be able to listen um, and find that common humanity. It, look, journalism is about, I don't believe in both sides of everything. In fact, there is a spoof on Saturday Night Live, actually spoofing uh, public television and public radio. And they were like, tonight, the pros and cons of cannibalism. I get the pros, but you know. <laughs> and we are kind of at that place in our country where it's like the pros and cons of taking children from their parents. There is no pro and con. There isn't. Uh, so for me, Dean, what's happened is that um, as a depending on the kind of reporting that we're doing, right? If you're doing what I would call more straight uh, investigative journalism, then we are, the intention is to be fair, but also deep accountability. Uh, we just released another documentary, Taking on the Border Patrol, because I will forever be taking on the Border Patrol. Uh, my dream in that piece was that I actually wanted to go to the International Court of The Hague and say, when are you going to hold the United States accountable? for what it does, right? When will you hold the United States accountable? And I was adamant with my team. I was like, we will get me to The Hague and you will have me going up those steps to bang on the door and say, what is the matter except here's the problem. The United States is no longer a signatory to the International Declaration of Human Rights. And you know why? Because of the Iraq War because of the fact that this country was going to uh, participate in torture. And it was, part of the, it was part of what was going to be accepted. And we all accepted that or not, but it is now part of our reality, right? We are, not, we are not, in fact, a part of the international community. And that, again, goes back to why this piece on USA versus Garcia Luna or why taking on the Border Patrol. It's because... These institutions have extraordinary power. And as long as I have a breath in me, because they are not, these institutions are not playing fair. They are not playing fair. And so I'm not going to let them just run amok. We've seen what can happen when institutions or parties uh, are allowed to run amok. We're seeing the results right now. I mean, Jared and Ivanka are going to have to go testify about January 6th. So, and January 6th, to me, 
is not an event that happened and is over. There is what I call a perpetual state of attempted coup d'etat that began, not began, but its, uh, its, its crescendo was January 6th, but they are continuing. What happened with the shutdown in the government earlier this year? Was it earlier this year, right? Uh, where they were not going to allow Congress to go into session? That is part of the perpetual state of attempted coup d'etat in our country. So we have to be very clear about what is happening with the threats to our country. And we have to resist because that is what we must do if we believe in democracy. We must. So I, you know, I became an American citizen by choice. And this is the reason why I feel so strongly because I actually had to raise my right hand and say that I would take up arms for this country. And I don't like guns, but I had to say that. So I now know I will hold this country accountable until the very last breath. So, so let's, let's get even a little more personal. When you were covering narcos in um, Colombia, you had seen so many awful things over your career, you had a panic attack. How do you deal with a panic attack when you're a journalist? Mm. Um, yeah, and by the way, I ended up interviewing uh, Pablo Escobar's killer, his name is Popeye. He's dead now. I'm not going to say may he rest in peace because, mm. I mean, he, he was Pablo Escobar's sicario. He murdered 500 people at a minimum. Um, when I went back to Colombia a few years ago to do my return to Medellin um, and we interviewed Popeye, he said, no, we knew that you were in Medellin in 1988 when you were there. We knew what you were doing and we just made a choice not to kill you because we didn't want to make a, a big stink in offing an American journalist. Um, so the fear was correct. Um, you know, my panic attacks actually became much more intensified after September 11th. So what I experienced in Colombia was just an inkling of what would later really develop into full PTSD. And as a journalist with PTSD, well, we're not supposed to have PTSD, so nobody really knew um, and I think that was, that was where I, I knew I had to do deep intensive therapy. Um, and you know, now there's a lot of ways to deal with PTSD, uh, which we didn't have that much access about 20 years ago. Uh, I'm now covering a story in, of the massacre that happened in Uvalde, Texas. And so some of the kids that I'm reporting about are getting treatment for PTSD because of what they witnessed, their survivors. And they're doing the, what is it? EMDR. EMDR. So they're doing EMDR, which, I mean, I'm like, wow, what would have happened if I had access to EMDR? I didn't. I just ended up smoking pot, um, which was my shame because I was sure that um, what was going to happen was that I was going to get arrested, that I was going to be outed as a journalist, that my credibility was going to be lost, that I would lose my citizenship and all of this because of something that is now legal. And now I am a medical marijuana patient in the state of Connecticut, so you can't touch me. <laughs> so, so, so cannabis aside, are, how, how are you? Um, well, actually, cannabis is really important to my healing. 
Um, so I don't put it aside. I actually doy gracias por mi plantita um, every day uh, because it is actually a really important part of because I I don't I'm, I know many in our, in our profession we drink right and I I don't drink I know we make fun of the tequila with USA versus Garcia Luna. Here's the thing, I do sip one shot of tequila every evening at around six, so it's not too late because I really get I don't liquor is not my thing, but I do it because it helps to control cholesterol. It's true. I know you're laughing. It's true. Don't make me laugh. You know that um, the cactus is the healthiest plant that you can consume. Mexicans know this because we could, we eat nopales, right? So it's the healthiest plant that you can have is agave. Eh? But anyway, what was the question? I don't know, but I don't care now. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, oh, you asked me how I was. So I... Um, I mean, right now I feel a little bit challenged because I'm working on multiple deep investigations that I can't reveal all of them. And so it feels like a very heavy emotional space for me, which is good because I'm back in therapy and I love doing therapy. And, you know, so I'm really trying to be very rigorous about that self-care with therapy. Um, I actually, I'm great, bro. I'm serious. Like, Glad to like, hear it. like, I mean, can you imagine, um, in 2010, I thought I was going to be unemployed and that I was going to have to call my dad and say, dad, I didn't get the job at 60 minutes and I'm going to have to go out on employment. And instead something just said, well, try to create your own company. And so I did. And now I have my own company and then I created my own investigative unit. I'm the only Latina that has a national investigative unit that I'm running with another Latina. Um, and that we are deciding how we are 60 minutes. I like to say, you know, I'm the captain now. I'm 60 minutes now. Yeah, you are. So I'm, I'm, you know, I keep on bringing up my therapist because the first thing I said to my therapist, uh, as I started doing therapy a couple of weeks ago, because I'm doing all this intense stuff, I said, look, El problema es de que yo lo escogí todo. O sea, this is all of my doing. So if I'm going through a rough emotional time, it's because I asked for it. So it's a little bit crazy that I should be doing therapy. And it's like, and I actually said to my therapist, like, is there something wrong with me, with us, that we want to do this work? And she's like, this is your calling. You will forever do it. You know, and I needed to be affirmed for her, by her. And, and then I'm like, yeah, and I love it. I love it. I, I just, I feel so plena, so full, so, so prepared, so excited, so in love with the work of being a journalist and by doing this work and feeling the love from the audiences. So I'm, I'm good. I'm good. We need a healthy Maria Hinojosa. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel very good, very healthy. So there are two people you've brought up in, in your books who were guests at our writer symposium. Bill Moyers, my personal hero. Why was he significant to you? Well, because he was one of those guys that I would watch when I was a kid. Um, Bill Moyers, I mean, I remember him when he was a commentator for CBS News. Mm -hmm. So this was a very different time in our country, right? They would actually allow a commentator like Bill Moyers to give a commentary on the evening news, um, the CBS evening news. And so I just remember listening to him and just like the way he talked and the notion of justice that he brought through. 
so Bill was like, yeah, he was like a god. The first time I met Bill, I mean, that was me. I was like, can I hug you? And he was like, okay. <laughs> and I was like, I love you. And then we ended up working together, you know, so I would see Bill all the time. So Bill is, um, thank God for Bill Moyers. I, I have uttered those very same words. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Another person you bring up who we've had here three times, Anne Lamott. Oh, my God. Yeah, so you bring her up in Raising Roll? Yeah. Why, why was Because Operating Instructions was important to you. I mean, Operating Instructions was the book that allowed me to think that maybe I could write Raising Raul. Um, I've never met Anne Lamott. I have I not. Can, I can. I mean, I would I love that, that because yeah. I just, she was that, she was that person where I was like, wow, Anne Lamott. You know, when you read Anne Lamott, you're just like, ah, oh, you know, your heart melts and you just feel so seen and so loved. And she's so honest um, and so humble. Um yeah, I, I I would love to if there's a way to just say like oh my course. god, she, yeah, I mean yeah, we'll make it happen. He's like yeah, I got you, I yeah, got you. we'll make it happen. Um, so I'm just saying it's very important that we as journalists find our inspirations, our north stars. Literally, my north star is Frederick Douglass. Um, so I'll never be able to meet him, but he is he is my north star. Um, I'm lucky that I live in Harlem, USA, and so four blocks from me is a statue of. Frederick Douglass on Central Park North. And so in my moments, I will go and I will talk with Frederick. And if Frederick Douglass could be born enslaved and then be a free man and then create his own newspaper and do everything that he did, then I certainly cannot feel daunted by the tasks ahead. Which, which is really interesting because it... I, I love what Sandra Cisneros told you about writing what you can't... Well, what you write, things that you wish you could forget. Yeah. Things that you've already forgotten. Don't write about all the things that you remember. Go deeper into the place and try and think about the things that you, you want to forget, that you wish you had never seen, and write about those. That's really good writing advice. What, do you have other writing advice for some of our uh, aspiring... Writers, journalists. I mean, Sandra Cisneros is my muse. She really, uh, she really is in many ways a guiding light for me. She's the one who gave me the go ahead to write once I was you. Because um, again, I was like, can I do this? I'm not so sure. And she said, you know, you can send me something. Just know that I'm going to be really honest with you. And I was like, ah. and so when I sent her something, she said, you got this girl. You got a voice. You have a narrative. Go forward. Um, I mean, my advice to young writers is, it, it sounds trite, but it, mean, it basically is you just got to do it. You have to rip the bandage off and you just have to sit and do it. Um, I'm, I'm under a little bit of pressure now to write my next book, right? So my agent is already talking to me, my editor, um, and they already have an idea of the book that they want me to write. And I'm just like, wow, how am I going to do this? What's up? You know, so it can all be ideation until you actually sit down and start writing it. And those days, not every day is a good day when you're a writer, when you're actually writing a book. But the important thing is to write every single day. And so when I wrote Once I Was You, I wrote every single day. I'm that person. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it, including Saturdays and Sundays. There's no break. It's every single day um, until you finish 
um, the crazy thing was that I am so insecure on certain things. I still have a certain level of insecurity. And so I didn't think I could write a whole book. So when I finished the manuscript and I handed it in and my uh, editor read it and she was like, it's really good. We only have one problem. And I was like, what? She was like, I'm going to have to cut out 100,000 words because you only needed to write 100,000 words and you wrote 200,000 words. And I was like, seriously? Um, and she was like, don't worry, I'm going to do surgical removal, which she did. She got rid of an entire boyfriend, actually from Tijuana. <laughs> Bye. Later. It was good. Um, so, so sometimes that insecurity will make you actually overperform, which is great. Because then I ended up writing the children's version of Once I Was You, which is the latest book. So if you have kids, there is a whole new book called Once I Was You, Finding My Voice and Passing the Mic. And it's, a, it's written for 10-year-old to 17-year-old. So definitely get it because it's about empowering our young people. So we're going to wrap this up this way. Um... Two things. One is, a lot of people say that you have an agenda. I actually know what the agenda is. I know what your agenda is. See if I'm right. To make us feel. Yeah. Am I right? You're exactly right. You're exactly right. You do a great job at it. Thank you. You do a great job at it. <laughs> so... So I'm just going to read the last couple of lines from your, from your Once I Was You. I love how you end it. It's sort of your kind of journalistic manifesto. I will attempt to tell your story with respect so that you are not silenced and not invisible. Those are my truest inspirations. The ones who may be invisible to you, but who are in fact everywhere around us. Everywhere around you if you would just open your eyes and see them. Maria Inahosa, thank you for opening our eyes. Oh, thank you. That was awesome. been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.